Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. We want to be like the Bereans who receive the Word of God with all joy, but they search the Scriptures to make sure that these things are true. And that is why we are on a Truth Quest. Now, this is a Q&A. If you have a question, then you can write question in front of your question, write your question out carefully, and then reread it, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. This Q&A is a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Tucson. If you have a question about a prior teaching, a video on YouTube or Facebook, then you can ask that question, or even a previous Q&A, you can ask that question. Our first question today comes from our study this last weekend, where we were talking about a prophecy that Jesus had uh, that Jesus had given and that was fulfilled. Uh, this prophecy would be that every stone would be thrown off of the Temple Mount. Not one stone would be left upon the other. And uh, of course that came to pass. And it came to pass finally in 135, so that if you go to the Temple Mount today, not one stone is left upon the temple and the other. So here's the question that we got. The question was about whether or not the Temple Mount today is the real Temple Mount, or whether it's in the city of David. If you go on YouTube and you look up the place of the Temple Mount, you're gonna see a lot of videos that claim that the Temple Mount was in the city of David instead of where it is at today. And I just wanna share a couple of things about that. First of all, this is a hoax. The Temple Mount is exactly where we believe the Temple Mount is on top of Mount Moriah and was not in the city of David. It could not even fit there. The temple that, that Herod would have built could not have fit there. There was also cisterns up on top of the Temple Mount and they found them. Archaeology has sifted through thousands of tons of dirt and found evidence, not that it was a Roman camp, which is what these videos are going to say, that it was a Roman camp and that it was later on identified as the Temple Mount, but it's not. In fact, when you go down and you look at the archways, the mikvahs that were found or the, the ritual baths that were found, when you look at the cisterns to support the water for those ritual baths, in today's money, to build that platform that's up there, just the platform, just the retaining wall that would hold the temple would have cost in today's money $2 billion. They would have never put that kind of money to flatten out ground to be able to put a camp of soldiers on top of that. There's no way. That was built by Herod. Now, the reason that there are still stones there is that it's the retaining wall. Jesus said of the temple that not one stone would be left upon another. But the mountain is naturally a mountain that comes to a rounded point. And they built a retaining wall around it to build a giant flat spot up on top of Mount Moriah to be able to put the temple on. And so the stones you see there today are the retaining wall. But let's talk about those who want to say that the temple was in the city of David. First of all, Holocaust deniers also deny that the Temple Mount is the temple. They, they want to deny Israel any right to Jerusalem and any right to the Temple Mount. Also, the UN 
which hates Israel. And if they put any kind of a condemnation together, it is of the state of Israel. And the UN declares that the Temple Mount was not on top of the temple. This is political. It's a political thing to try to deny Israel the right to that particular area. Also, there's those that have grabbed onto it to be able to get views on YouTube and be able to sell books and to sell DVDs. Not one scholar that I know of, not one believes the Temple Mount was in the city of David. This is the lack of a scholarly work. And it's really important that we don't grab onto something like this that is untruthful. You can still go, you could still go and be a part of the dig that's sifting through dirt from the Temple Mount. That's finding temple stones, that's uh, our temple, um, temple coins where people paid in shekel. They found a seal from one of the priests from 600, from four, four or 500 years BC, uh, uh, before Christ. And uh, so many other findings. They didn't find, what they didn't find there was evidence of a Roman camp during the time that the Temple Mount was supposed to be there. They found temple things, not Roman camp things. Archaeology stands behind the Temple Mount being on top of Mount Moriah. Scholars stand behind the Temple Mount being on top of Mount Moriah. Archaeologists stand with the Temple Mount being on top of Mount Moriah. If you have questions about this, then go to YouTube and look up the Temple Mount hoax. And you're going to get a lot of videos that you're going to be able to watch. Some of them are 10 minutes. Some of them are an hour. Some of them are a couple of hours, but they will go over the evidence. This is something that I have had to revisit over the last few years. It's relatively new. It started in the 1990s when Bill Clinton grabbed a hold of the idea in order to try to divide things for the Palestinians. When he grabbed a hold of the idea that the Temple Mount was in the city of David, it would seem almost like he was trying to, you remember that the Antichrist makes a peace treaty. And I'm not saying that Bill Clinton was the Antichrist. I'm just saying that when he did it, it was like, hey, what's going on here? And also there are Jews that have grabbed a hold of the idea because they want the Temple Mount to be rebuilt and can't see how it's going to be rebuilt with the Dome of the Rock and the Alaska Mosque up on top. However, even though there are people that, that, on opposite sides, Holocaust deniers and those who want to rebuild the temple because they're Jewish and want it rebuilt are saying the same thing about the city of David. It, it's evidently clear from the evidence, which is what evidently means, right? Uh, from the evidence that the Temple Mount was where it was and that Jesus was accurate when he said that, the, that the, there would not, would not be one stone left upon another. He wasn't talking about the retaining wall. He was talking about the temple. Now, I'll probably end up doing a hot topic on this that'll be about 15 minutes long where we talk about the main reasons why the Temple Mount is on top of the temple. And if you have any further questions about it, uh, then we can cover it. So it's good to see you guys here today. Uh, and we will go back and take our first question. Good to see you guys logged in. Keith, thank you for being here. Uh, Keith is uh, one of our moderators. And um, we have a question here from Malika. I think that's how you say your name, Malika. Hopefully I didn't uh, butcher that uh, question. How do you make sure you're following Jesus's commandments without falling into the trap of legalism? Uh, I really like this question, Malika, because it is really a danger. In our study tonight, we're talking about how to live a life pleasing to God. And 
the passages we're covering are so powerful and they give us tools to be able to face temptations when they arise and to make sure that we are walking with Christ in such a way that we can overcome them. That when you begin to do these things, like I'll give you an example. There's three things. The Bible says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, I love that because it's positive. It's not stop sinning, stop lusting, stop whatever. It's like, you want to stop doing those things? Then today, start walking in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Romans 8, 6 through 8 says, the mind set on the flesh is, is, is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life. Begin thinking about the things of the spirit. Then it says in the Old Testament, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Don't, it, you, today, people are Christians are delighting in the world. They're delighting in the flesh, delighting in the things of the world. And then when the temptation happens, they fall into it without ever being prepared. So if you delight in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. If you abide in Jesus, his word will abide in you and you will ask whatever you desire and it will be given to you. These are real ways for us to be able to overcome sinful things. But here's the problem. Once you start doing those things and you start walking in the spirit, then the enemy tempts you with pride because pretty soon you're like, I've been able to overcome these things that I've battled with forever. And I've discovered the secret. It's certainly not a secret. It's just, it's just so many people focus on don't do that. Don't do that. The problem with don't do that preaching or don't do that living is that you become so distracted by what you're not supposed to do that you end up being tempted by it. When you think on whatever's holy, whatever's pure, whatever's right, when you take your thoughts captive, when you think on the things of the spirit, when you walk in the spirit and when you sow to the spirit and not to the flesh, now you suddenly discover that you're able to live a life that is pleasing to God. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying we don't need grace. I'm not saying that everything will be taken care of, but I am saying when that happens, then the enemy tempts us with pride. And that's the next thing that you see is people start feeling like, well, I got myself taken, you know, I got myself together. I'm able to walk with Christ now. And I would say, if you really walk in the spirit, then you're going to be humble. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control is the evidence of the spirit. So you need to guard against spiritual pride. Malika, there's something inside of each one of us that makes us want people to think that we're really spiritual. We put on an act instead of just being honest. I want us to try to be so honest about who we are, not pretend to be someone else, but just be who we are. That's the way we walk humbly with him. But we can also have our righteousness established by Christ because uh, we have done those things that God has called us to do. The spirit of God is inside of you. He is working within you. Pride is one of your greatest dangers. As, as dangerous as the works of the flesh are, pride is every bit as dangerous and can bring you down. And so I love that question. And I think it's something every one of us should be considering so that we do not fall into legalism. Fall into legalism, we think our way is better and, and we become spiritually pride. And you know what we become like, Malika? We become like the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus had his harshest words against because we think that we are better because we've gotten into some place that 
that we think is that's religious that we think is better and um, pride is always always dangerous so thank you for asking that question we have another question here from fact check these hands uh revelation 8 10 through 11 says is wormwood a literal heavenly body that falls to the earth revelation 9 1 seems to use a star in a symbolic way so is wormwood also symbolic um, not a similar star. So let's go ahead and uh, take a look at that. And I will uh, take a moment to pull that up here. So we are going to look at Revelation 10, uh, 8, 10, 11. 8, 10. We'll just pull up 10 and we'll scroll down. Oops. All right. Almost done here. All right, let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you and we will take a look. Um, all right, so um, let's start with the, it's the trumpets. Um, Their angels sound, okay, so let's start with verse six. Uh, then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurtled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. So just right there, it seems like uh, hail and fire mixed with blood. Um, it doesn't sound literal to me. Uh, like it's a literal, that that is a literal, you know, meteor shower because it's mingled with blood maybe after it hits mingle with blood. Let's keep going. That's not the verse yet. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea was turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in this in this in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So this sounds like a, a literal meteorite to me. Something like a mountain thrown into the sea. And then your verse, the third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky towards the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood and a third of the waters turned bitter and many people died from waters that had become bitter. So I do think that this is, I do think that this is a, like a, a, a meteor falling to the earth. I do think it's like a star that looks like a meteor that falls. It seems like uh, the other stuff that is up there, the, uh, the ones that are before it, are like, are like meteor showers that look like meteor showers. And this has something in this comet, this that strikes the earth or, or literally a, a, a falling star that burns up all the way to the ground. I don't know if you've ever seen anything like that. Um, I've seen a couple of them in my lifetime and they look absolutely spectacular. I remember one time downtown Tucson I see something fall to the sky. We watch something like a like it's middle of the day, like a a bright star falling to the ground, like a shooting star falling to the ground. And I remember saying to my wife, that was either one block over and something small or something very huge that just hit the earth. Sure enough, later on we learned that it was a piece of scrap metal that was falling from the sky and fell miles away from Tucson, but made it so bright when it burned all the way down to the earth. And so I think that that's what this is. And, and remember, they're giving descriptions of things that may be different, it might be unique, but they're giving descriptions that we can hang on to, ones that people in their day would have looked and seen. So 
Uh, the third angel sounded a trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky, one third of the rivers and the spring of the waters. It talks about what it did. So, yeah, I do believe, fat check these hands, that the, these would be meteors that fall to the earth, uh, look like stars, and or a meteor shower that falls to the earth and looks like these things. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, what became of the Nephilim that were babies that died in the flood? Did they go to heaven? Since they were just infants, uh, became demons since they were hybrids. Thank you. Yeah, there is a there is a thought that these the Nephilim, uh, because they weren't human, became demons and that that's who Jesus was casting out. I reject that. I, I don't think that that's the case. I think these are the heavenly hosts, the un the unclean spirits. And I've spent some time in it. Um, and I don't think that that is the case. The babies that were Nephilim during those days, what about just the soul of the Nephilim? Not just the babies. Um, but I see what you're saying. I, I understand the question you're asking. So if today when a baby dies or is miscarried or killed before it's born, that goes into the presence of God, then what happens to the soul of the Nephilim. Um, I'm going to say these were mighty men of old. Um, they were a, 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 perhaps the Rephidim, perhaps giants. Um, but they also had a human, I don't know if they had a human soul. Here, here we have just too many questions to be able to answer. I mean, we can make all kinds of speculations. Uh, if this is an angel that possessed a human, to abide with women, if that's what Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is all about, then the baby that would be born would be human. Even though there's something genetic taking place. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. And we're seeing genetic things take place today. If it was some demon that there that took form as a person in, in body and had sex and produced a child, then the offspring of that demon you would think would be irredeemable. These are uh, really interesting questions that I think not even scholars are going to be able to answer. You can go back into the first century writers and you can see what they believed about these things. Um, but uh, we can just continue to speculate on so many other things. Um, I do believe it was angels that abode with women. I do believe that they are kept in darkness because they didn't keep their proper place. And so God took them out of circulation, as it were. Um, there were also Nephilim later on. So does that mean other angels didn't keep their proper abode too? It seems like it. And the, if the giants are a result of that, you've also got giants spoken of in the time of Ezekiel and giants spoken of in the time of Joshua, which was quite a bit of time after the flood. And so um, what were these Nephilim? Were they just men that were powerful? because of something that in some demonic way, there was some genetic something being done. Um, I don't know. It's fun to think about though, and to consider all of the things that are there. Uh, it creates a lot of problems, which is why I think some people go, oh, it's Cain. Well, that's not why. It's easier for them to go, this was the, the men of Cain intermarrying with the daughters of Seth. But that gives no explanation for the Nephilim or for the spirits that didn't keep their proper dominion during the days of Noah, that I think 1 Peter talks about. 
so um, let's see. Fact check these hands. I'm going to um, go take one question per person today, and um, I'll come back and pick that up. Uh, I know what the question is there, or we can look at it later on. Uh, but um, we have a question from Psychman. I'd like your new picture, Psychman. Uh, Psychman says, "Question: What do the flesh and blood? What do the flesh and blood of Christ represent?" Colossians 1.4, John 1.14. Yes, thanks, Mr. Robert Dude. Uh, these are really great. Hey, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so let's see, Colossians 1.4. Let me go ahead and pull that up here and we will take a look and we'll see if there's anything particular in the verses that you're talking about that talks about the blood and the flesh of Christ representing, okay? And... Um, of course, we know that it represents his flesh, and we know that it represents his blood. And Jesus said, this is my the blood of the new covenant that is shed for you. So we know that. So go ahead, one and then 14. Um, also, we know this, that this is my body that was sacrificed for you, the atoning work of Christ. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and I like this. Let's go ahead and pull this up on screen here. Um, so it says, uh, verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Uh, this, when, when we talk about how is it that we were redeemed, so redemption is the purchasing back you, when, you, when you are redeeming something. So he bought us back with his own blood. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. His death on the cross, which was the shedding of his blood, it, it saves us. And the redemptive, the, the, the shedding of his blood purchased us back. So we could say the shedding of his blood redeemed us as well. And um, then what was your other, uh, what was your other one there? Let's see. Let's see if I can get to that question here. And um, John 1.14 as well. And, um, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the father. And I do think that that comes down to uh, God giving Jesus a body that he could come and give to us. And that's really what, um, and, and Hebrews talks about that. It talks about Jesus being given a body that he could come and give a sacrifice. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, so when we're, when we're partaking of communion, it is a memorial meal. Remember that it was at Passover, which was a memorial meal for the Passover. And Jesus is the Passover lamb, and he gives us a new memorial meal. That's important when it comes to what the purpose of this is. He didn't give the memorial meal to be able to give the elements that were his flesh and that were his blood. He gave the memorial meal for us to remember and for the church to always have centered that Jesus shed his blood for our sins and gave his body as a gift to us. I mean, when you think about it, what's changed in the church in the last 2,000 years? Almost everything. There's been a lot of changes in the church. There are certain things that stayed the same because the Bible addresses them to keep them the same. But in 2,000 years, they'll still be taking communion because we were told to do this as often as we meet in remembrance of him. And so it keeps communion right, it keeps the cross, his death, right in the middle of what we do as a church because we're supposed to often take communion together and to, to know and remember those things. All right, thank you, Psych Man. Uh, good stuff, dude, I appreciate it. Uh, we will look for another question here. We have a question from Albert. 
Albert, good to see you. Albert, so he's got good questions. Part uh, question, part one, is the prince of Israel in the millennial kingdom in Ezekiel 44.3, who enters the east gate and um, a resurrected David? Ezekiel 45.22 says, the prince will offer a sin offering for himself. Okay. Um, yeah, so you would, the prince of Israel in the millennial kingdom. That's really interesting. Um, never thought about it, Albert, whether or not what David would be doing during the millennium. So David will obviously be resurrected and have a resurrected body. And Jesus will be sitting on the throne. And is this prince of Israel, David? And then he would make a sacrifice in a memorial way, uh, saying the prince will offer will uh, offer a sin offering for himself. Yeah, um, I'm I'm gonna it, when you realize everyone's resurrected, it doesn't sound so far fetched that we have a resurrected David. So when you read it and you, you listen to it and go during the millennium period, everyone's resurrected except for the people who are still alive during the millennium and they will be resurrected at the end of the millennium. And all of those who resurrect in Christ will be part of the first resurrection. And then everyone after that will be part of the second death. And um, I'm gonna say off the top of my head, uh, I might be able to find information that would make me think otherwise if we spent time going back and reading that entire chapter. Um, but I'm going to say, yeah, good thought. I had not thought about David being around while someone's sitting on the throne of David. Um, but it seems like that may very well be the case, at least a possibility of them. I'd, I'd love to go back and look and see if there is any, anything identifying, and you probably know, Albert, if there's anything identifying this prince uh, in the millennial kingdom as David. Um, I'm going to, it, it, it will go on my reading list to be able to look into more. All right, but um, very interesting question. I do appreciate that. All right, so uh, again, fact check these hands. We're gonna just take one question for right now. I may come back and get these, um, but we have a question from Kimberly, Empress Kimberly, good to see you. Hi, Pastor, could you explain Psalms 11.5 NIV? It says, God hates with a passion the wicked, those who love violence. Uh, it says, um, um, I will, I was surprised to read this. I thought God loves everyone. Okay, well, let's go there and we'll take a look and we'll talk about it. All right, let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. And it's uh, Psalm 11.5. Okay, let's go ahead and read that. In fact, let me just go ahead and take off the five there. I want to just pull up the whole context so we can read it a little bit in context if we need to. All right, let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. All right, so um, the director of music of David. Let's go ahead and read it from verse one. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, feel, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the stings. They shoot from the shadows at the upright heart when the fountains are being destroyed. What can the righteous do? The Lord in his holy temple, the Lord in his heavenly throne, who observes everyone on earth. 
his eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. All right, so um, fairly, uh, fairly straightforward. Let's go ahead and get back here. Fairly straightforward um, that there, there's also, you know, there's a passage that says, um, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And that's a quote from the Old Testament. I'm having a little bit of trouble with my cursor here. All right, that's a quote from the Old Testament. And the same kind of thing is thought there. How could God hate the wicked? And there's a statement here. I think there's another place where it says something similar. I don't think that is saying that God hates that God hates everyone or that God hates everyone who's not a Christian. We know that our hearts are wicked, and we know that um, in order to when we come to Christ, that we receive a new heart and that we're changed and we're transformed. Here, David would have had the heart still of of his, his sin nature, still would have been considered to be wicked because everybody is. But in these people, I think we get a clue here when it says the Lord examines the righteous, were made righteous because of faith in Christ. So was David, so was Abraham, right? But the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. So specifically, those who love violence. It's not just somebody in the days of David that was living their own life, that had a sin nature, that by human standards was pretty good. These by human standards are bad. They've made decisions that they would hate, that they would, um, those who would love violence. He hates, he hates with a passion. And I would say that for those who are wicked men, that are murderous and who love violence, that yes, God does hate them and wants to destroy them. I think we see it with Nineveh when he wants to judge Nineveh. I think we see it with other places where God turns to judge them. And the argument could be made that God, and they try to, that God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. I, I, I don't know, once you cross a certain line and you become violent and selfish and narcissistic and angry, that you cross a line over to being hated from God and, and you're under the wrath of God. Now, we already know that we are under the wrath of God, even if you are righteous by, if you are good by human standards. Now, when it says Esau I have loved, or Esau I've hated, but Jacob I have loved, he's talking about nations. He's talking about nations in the Old Testament, and he's talking about nations in Daniel 9, excuse me, in, in Romans 9 as well. He's talking about the, um, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau that he hated because they had become wicked people and done all kinds of wicked things. And Israel, who sought God and was seeking God, at least sometimes, that he loved. And God's saying in Romans 9 that those that he's decided to give salvation to, those who are the vessel of blessing as opposed to the vessel of condemnation are not those God randomly picks because he wants to, but it's those who believe. Remember chapter nine is connected to chapter 10. Chapter 10 in Romans clearly says, if you believe you will be saved. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. So God chose to save those who call on the name of the Lord. And who are you to say God can't do such a thing? That God can't have belief be the way that people would be saved. And it fits into Romans much better than the reformed theology view that God randomly chooses who to save and who to reject. Because Romans was written because people were trying to keep the law. 
And he deals with that throughout the book of Romans. He deals with it in chapter eight. He deals with it in, in chapter nine. He's, he's, he's talking specifically to those who are trying to keep the law. And so if God chose through belief in him, just simply belief in him, think Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works lest anyone should boast. Then, um, then for, for, for you and me, that, that we are chosen by him and chosen to have his love set upon us. Now, if we reject him, we're already under condemnation and the wrath of God rests upon us, the Bible says. But today, if I were a, a, a non-believer who was murderous, think of Charles Manson, think of, think of Hitler, think of Stalin, think of Lenin, that in their murderous rampages, God hated them. And I think that that's a proper thing to say. It doesn't fight with God so love the world because overall God loves the world. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people that love violence that haven't had the hatred of God come upon them. Now, I'll also tell you a way that some have explained it that I don't necessarily agree with. And that is that God takes a position of judging them, which looks like he hates them. And I don't think an honest reading of scripture lets us do that. When it says that, God hates the wicked. I, I don't think that we can really do that. He had some, he had some with a passion, those who love violence. All right. So hopefully that will be helpful. Um, I think we could honestly say that about someone who's just out to hurt somebody in a real strong way. Now, Albert got in a couple of questions here by having two, by giving us uh, part one and part two. So let's see if it's connected, Albert. Uh, part two, the prince, it is connected. The prince will have children. Ah, 4616 and possess an allotment of land 4618 in which would be appropriate and wouldn't be appropriate for Christ right and neither for a resurrected David Ezekiel 37 24 25 God speaks of David being their prince Ezekiel 37 25 and 46 all right well that's a really good connection Albert um I'm really impressed that you make those connections uh I've taught through Ezekiel. And when you're teaching chapter 37, you don't necessarily, when you get to 46, still make the connection. However, in 37, he is talking about the restoration of the land of Israel. That would be before the time of the millennium. And then you would have the millennium being, you would have the millennium spoken of in chapter 46. So there is that distinction. And again, without going through and reading it, I'm not sure I'm gonna be able to, to get anything out of it. I think it's really good insight and some really good questions. Um, I'm just not gonna be able to help you with that right now. We'd have to go back and read all of those things. I'll put it on my reading list and maybe we can bring it back up here in the future and take a look at it. But I do appreciate you, Albert, and I appreciate you um, diving into passages like that. I love it, all right? Uh, so uh, if you are new here, if you're just joining us, really glad to have you here. Hope that you're blessed by the time that you spend here. Our desire is to search God's word and answer questions based on what we find in the pages of scripture. If you're joining us and you have a question, it can be on anything. If you have a question on our previous Bible study, as I said, this is a supplement to our Bible, the teaching ministry at Calvary Tucson. And so if you have questions you can ask uh, from any of those studies, you can ask them, but you can ask questions about apologetics or prophecy or Christian living. I've got this going on in my life, what should I do? 
Um, I'm not sure that I'll be able to give you some direction and hopefully it will be good direction. All right. So um, we have a question from Lori. Lori says, uh, where did the term common era come from? You mentioned it in your teaching. Thank you for all you do. Um, I can only give you my opinion. I haven't done any research as to when common era and before common era started, but here's what I believe and take it for what it is. Okay. This is an opinion without any research. So how right can it be? I'm not sure. Um, I think they want to deny the year of our Lord after death, before death, he literally divides history. And so I think for generations to come, they wanted to make a change that made it not Christian. And so they, you know, every time they brought up something, they would say after death, meaning, you know, or, or at the year of our Lord, not after death, but the year of our Lord before Christ and the year of our Lord, um, AD. And, um, I think that it just spoke of Jesus. So they didn't want to do that. And the first place I ever saw it was in the Israeli museum. And this is back in the nineties. I don't know when it actually began and when it began to be common. I wouldn't be surprised to find out it was a long time ago, but I do know that we have an en entire generation who doesn't know AD and BC. We have, we have a, a whole generation that, I don't know, 20, 25, that have never heard it. And so just as my own little um, protest, I've refused to do common era and before common era. So uh, just because originally it was the year of our Lord. And um, so that's, uh, that's what I think, Lori. Um, I will try. I need to make a list of the things that I, I, I want to look up that I get interested in, but I would really like to look up where the foundation of common error and before common era is. And um, as far as I know, I'm going to be stubborn um, until the Lord uh, actually, uh, until the Lord actually comes back or, or I go to be with him uh, that I'm going to use AD and BC. All right. So we have a question here from Jim. Uh, Jim says, uh, Hebrews 13, 15. Let us continue offering the sacrifice of praise to God. To me, praise isn't a sacrifice. So is this saying we should praise God even when we don't feel like it or something else? All right. Thank you very much for putting that entire passage um, in there. It's pretty easy to cut and paste and do that. And um, I do appreciate that. It saves us a little bit of time. Um, I'm going to tell you what I feel about it. And I'm also going to pull the verse up here while we're looking at it. I'm going to go see it in context and see if there's anything that context can help us with. All right. So we are, we are, you're in the very end of the book of Hebrews here, and he's kind of wrapping things up. And the sacrifice of praise, I, I that you're giving something to God and that it's a sacrifice. So is God saying that we're giving part of our lives to him through praise? Because praise is more than just saying, you're holy, you're awesome, you're great, you're worthy to be praised, great and, 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 uh, and awesome are you, oh God, my Lord. It's more than that, right? So praise is where I am singing to him of his value and of what I want to give him and thankfulness with it as well. 
So could this be saying that you are lifting up a, a, a praise of sacrifice or sacrifice, um, a praise, uh, let's see, yeah, let us continue offering a sacrifice of praise to God. Could it be saying that the sacrifice of praise is, is you offering something to God that is a sacrifice and that it's in praise? Or is it saying that praise is actually a sacrifice? And um, it might not be a sacrifice to you, but I've been in two-hour worship services where it was definitely a sacrifice, and that's and that's unfortunate because I don't know uh, that it should be. So let's go ahead and look at this in context and see if we can, uh, and see if we can figure out anything that might be better help than just my bad sense of humor. All right. So um, therefore, by Him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks in his name. But do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. All right. So there is a common thread between verses 15 and 16, the sacrifice of praise, do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, um, God is pleased. And then, of course, 17, you can't leave out. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. And that's absolutely terrifying. That as a pastor, you will have to give an account to those uh, that you share for. So I think, um, I think Jim, that the sacrifice of praise is lifting them up and praising him. That when we stand and sing and giving a sacrifice doesn't necessarily need to be painful. If you're taking time and you're going to praise God, then it can be something that is joyous and you're giving your time. That is a sacrifice of your time. You could have been doing something else with it. You can give financially and it can be a sacrifice, but it doesn't mean you don't want to do it or doesn't mean you hurt when you do it. In fact, God loves a joyful giver. So I do think when it's making a reference to sacrifices there, it's making a reference uh, to the fact that you are giving up. In order to be giving him praise, you're giving something else up, and it's a sacrifice to God. Um, could you be offering sacrifices while you praise? Yes, you could. I don't know that that's what that's speaking of, but you could be praising him, giving your life to him, giving sacrifices in praise, and um, not just the sacrifice of praise to him. And the text itself says, let us continue to offer sacrifice of praise to God. So I would say the way that's worded, I don't know if it is worded a different way. Let's just take a quick look at this before we move on to another question. And um, let's take a quick look at this in the Amplified Bible. Through him, therefore, let us at all times offer up to God a sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of the lips that thankfully acknowledge and confess the glory and glorify his name. Well, that's interesting. So what the Amplified Bible does is it takes the meaning of the Greek words and tries to implement them in the text to give a little bit more understanding of the thoroughness of how it should be written, whereas words today might have a different meaning than the original language. They try to clarify that. So I like the at all times, offer up to God a sacrifice of praise, uh, which would be more than just a prayer, prayer service, right? It would be, lifting up praise and thanksgiving as a way of life. And um, to do so as a way of life would be a sacrifice. And um, maybe there's a lot for us to learn there 
that praise ought to be a lot more than us gathering together before service <clears throat> and just spending a little bit of time uh, praising God before we get into a Bible study. All right, so thank you, uh, Jim. I appreciate that. I appreciate your question. Going to take another question here now. If you're joining us for the first time, really glad to have you here. Hope you're being blessed. Uh, you can ask any question. You might have something going on in your life that you would like a question about or want some wisdom. Um, and I'm not saying that I got a great amount of wisdom. I just, we can look into the Word of God and uh, we can see uh, what the Word of God has to say. And also, 37 years of ministry of coming alongside of people and helping them up. Uh, so Empress Kimberly has a follow-up. Thank you, Pastor. Is it okay for us to hate those who love violence then? Ah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, no. I'm, I'm going to say no. Um, God will one day judge all mankind, but we are supposed to love our enemies. That's the command we've been given. We've never been given a command to hate our enemies. And so when I think of when I think of someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, who was a cannibal, and I think of God's judgment on them or lack thereof, because James Dobson went in to see him and declared that he had gotten saved. And that gave me great um, consternation that he would be in heaven because I couldn't imagine, I think cannibalism, you draw the line, you can't make it into heaven if you eat somebody, it just can't be done. But God's grace is sufficient for all. And um, I don't think hate, we should hate ungodliness, we should hate the flesh, we should hate sin. I think we can hate the enemy, hate the, the demonic forces that are against us. So there is a place for hate in our life, but the hate of a person, I don't think there is. And we can hate what they do, hate the violence, hate that they would come to the place of doing such a thing. We can be disgusted with it, but we should pray for them, pray that God would somehow do something because even the soul of someone who does something despicable like violence could be saved by Jesus Christ. Every bit as easily as you and I have, Kimberly. It's a pretty incredible thought. So yeah, I'm gonna stick with my no. Sometimes I talk my way into a yes by going, you know, as I try to start to explain it. When you're asking questions, answering questions off the top of your head, sometimes you just think about things as you move on. But I think, no, we're told to love our enemies, bless those who curse you. And um, that's how we wanna do it. And thank you for your follow-up question. And by the way, although we are taking one question from each person, follow-up questions are, um, are encouraged just for clarification. I wanna make sure that we get to the answers there. Um, all right, so uh, again, good to see you guys. Good to have you here. If you're here for the very first time, really glad to have you. Uh, this is a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Tucson. Uh, we have a Bible study tonight in Galatians chapter five. It's that great passage that talks about the fruit of the spirit and the lust of the flesh, and how those that practice the things of the lust of the flesh will not make it into the kingdom of God. But in the life of someone who walks in the spirit will be the fruit of the spirit. So you can back your way into whether or not you are walking in the spirit. If you do not have the fruit of the spirit in your life, 
um, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's pretty strong things, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Just, I know a lot of Christians who aren't gentle at all in what they do. And self-control, which is the power to be able to overcome things. If we don't have those, we can identify and say, I'm really not walking in the spirit much. You might be walking in the spirit some, but you aren't walking in the spirit much, if you can back your way out of that. So we're looking at the passage that says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we're gonna be talking about how the spirit works in our lives to make that true. What kind of things does the spirit do so that if I walk in the spirit, then I don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh? We'll be talking about the Holy Spirit as well as the as, as part of the Godhead and um, being over the surface of the water in the very beginning, we see the Spirit of God right away in the early part of the Bible. And we'll be talking about all of those things. So it is good to see you guys. It's been good to spend time here with you. I hope that you guys are greatly blessed. Uh, stay close to Jesus, live wholeheartedly for him as you make a decision in your life to be the person God wants you to be. And I encourage you again, live a life pleasing to God by doing today what you need to do. If you sow to the spirit from the spirit you reap life, then you're gonna be sowing from things you sowed in the past. That's what farmers do. They sow, they cultivate, and then they reap. And whatever you're reaping today is a result of what you've sown in the past. And what we sow today will be a crop that we will have in our future. And how that should encourage us to sow good things, to put our mind on the things of the spirit, to walk in the spirit, to delight in our Lord, who will give us righteousness as we delight in him. All right, so God bless you guys, love you, stay close to Jesus, um, endeavor uh, to walk in love with one another, because in this God's will pleased, and the Bible says above all things have a fervent love for one another. So I'm out, we'll see you guys, uh, this is uh, Wednesday, so we'll see you guys Saturday again for our Q&A. Remember, if you watch one of our studies or one of our hot topics or our past Q&A, and it brings up a question for you, then go ahead and write it down and join us for our Q&A and ask the question. You can also go anywhere on YouTube, our YouTube page, Calvary Tucson with Robert Furrow, and ask the question there. And if it's, if it's connected to a previous video, then we'll talk a little bit about that video and we'll bring the question up as one of our first questions in one of our studies and one of our Q and A's. All right. So, you know, watch a video and then ask a question specifically about that video. Um, and then we will use it as one of our opening videos. All right. Our opening questions. All right. God bless you guys. Uh, we will see you later on. We've got a, a service here in an hour. I'll be teaching in about an hour and a half on walking in the spirit. And I think it's going to be such a powerfully profound teaching, not because I'm powerfully and profound or powerful and profound, but because the word of God is, and this is an incredible principle that helps us be able to do what God's called us to do. So God bless you guys. I'm out. We'll see you later on.